I would say I've never handled anything like this. I don't think our city has ever handled anything quite like this. I'd say this is bigger than anything Sacramento has ever seen. Welcome to Majority Minority, the show about people of color changing the face of politics. I'm Bill Douglas. And I'm Franco Ordonez. The city of Sacramento remains on edge after Stefan Clark was shot and killed by police in his grandparents' backyard on March 18th. The incident began when two police officers responded to reports of vandalism in Clark's neighborhood of Meadowview. It ended with a 22-year-old dead, the latest in a seemingly endless string of cases around the country involving police violence against people of color. In Sacramento, officers said they fired thinking Clark was carrying a gun. He was carrying a cell phone. And in the days since the shooting, hundreds of protesters have marched in Sacramento looking for answers and what they believe is justice. One person facing questions is Sacramento Police Chief Daniel Hahn. He's the city's first African-American chief of police and someone who has seen both sides of the law while growing up in the capital city. You're just trying to think of, okay, how do I help the family? How do we get better? How do we actually make change so we as a community don't go through this again? We spoke with Hahn about the Clark case and the implicit bias that he says permeates both his community and his police force. Stick around on Majority Minority. Chief Han, thank you so much for joining us on Majority Minority. There's been a lot going on in Sacramento surrounding the tragedy of Stefan Clark. Do you mind just sharing with us a little bit about this challenge? You know, how difficult is this for the community? How difficult is it for the department? Obviously, this is a really tough time for the family of Mr. Clark as they've lost a loved one. But I think it's also important to note that it's also really tough and a tragedy for our entire community, which includes the police department. And then obviously we've had some very tense times over the last couple of weeks with some of the protests and some of the other things going on. So it's, um, it's a challenging time for everybody. Why do you think these incidents keep happening? Not just Sacramento, but you, you've seen these in, in larger cities. You, you saw it recently in, in a smaller community like Asheville, North Carolina. Why do these shootings and incidents occur? I think it's a lot of things. Police work is tough. There's a lot of challenging situations. There's a lot of things that our country struggles with and has struggled with for a long time. There's no doubt that any city you go into, there are neighborhoods that don't look like other neighborhoods. The opportunities aren't the same. The people don't feel the same about their community. So I think it's a lot of different factors all mixed into situations like this and why we see some of these things across our country. Chief, you were brought in after another high-profile shooting of a mentally ill black man, Joseph Mann, in 2016. How does this compare to other challenges you've handled in the past? I would say I've never handled anything like this. I don't think our city has ever handled anything quite like this, including the aftermath of this. I'd say this is bigger than anything Sacramento has ever seen. And I think it was very close to getting a little bit worse. And so I think there was a lot of contributing factors of how it didn't get worse. I think there were some community leaders that definitely contributed and called for calm. The way the officers acted during the protests with professionalism and and calm, I think, contributed. I think we as Sacramento is what kept some of the things from getting worse. It's definitely a challenge. There's a lot of um, things to deal with. In addition to the actual investigation, there's the protests themselves and the community and 
all the things that go with that, but there's also moving forward. Are there things, and I think there are, that we can change or do different, both as a police department and as a community as a whole, that would help prevent these sort of things in the future? And I think if we don't do those things, if we don't take a hard look at even the fundamental way we deliver service in our community, then it remains a tragedy and nothing good comes out of it. And I I think we fail as a community if that happens. Can you describe the relationship between the police and the community right now? I think we all knew that it wasn't where we wanted it to be. And this whole incident and the resulting activities showed and proved that we're not where we need to be. And we knew that, but this is an example of what happens when you're not. But I think in general, we have a fairly good, for the most part, relationship with the community, but it needs to be a lot better, especially in certain neighborhoods. And we'll continue to work for that. How do you break through that culture within the police department, not just your department, but police departments in general, that sort of thin blue line. At the same time, how do you break through the culture of distrust that exists within some minority communities towards law enforcement? I think we have to be human beings. I mean, sometimes as police officers, we're both perceived and then sometimes we act as if we're not true human beings. So if you think about who you trust and who do you truly trust in your life. It's probably somebody you've known for a while. It's probably somebody that you've gone through some good times and bad times, and they've been there. And so I think it's the same thing with law enforcement and community. We have to be there in good times and bad times. We have to be there over time. At the end of the day, all of our communities have to believe and know that their police officers care about them. And they care about their well-being. They're not just here doing a job, making an arrest if somebody breaks the law, but they actually care. And I think that comes over time. And as part of my job as police chief, I have to find, first of all, hire officers that are good for our community, but then allow those officers time and the, the spaces to let their heart show. So if all they're doing is going to call, to call, to call, to call, that can happen on those calls because obviously you show you care on those calls, but we also need to be there in good times and bad times, and I have to ensure that we have spaces to do that. You know, Mayor Steinberg last week spoke about racism in law enforcement, and he doesn't think the Sacramento Police Department is racist. But at the same time, he spoke of implied racism. I do not believe our police force is racist in any way. I don't think that's intended, but I do believe that implied racism is an undeniable factor in the way these sorts of uh, tragedies play out, not just in Sacramento, but throughout the country. What do you think he meant by that? I don't know what he meant by that, but I can tell you what I believe. Race permeates almost everything we do in our country. It is such a big issue that we struggle with everywhere in our country every day. And so I do believe implicit bias is something that we have to tackle for sure as a police department, but as a society. And we need to do a better job of that. And we are doing that. I'm working with some professors for the last six months or so of creating an extensive implicit bias training, both for our officers and the community, taught by officers and community, and other things around that, because everybody has implicit bias. And so we have to realize it and keep it in check. And I think that's a big part of what we see in our country, but what we see in law enforcement and community relations. And it's even more pronounced in law enforcement because we have, in my opinion, the most power of any profession in our country. We can take people's freedom away. We have guns. We have tasers. And so um, that's why it gets concentrated so much on law enforcement because of the immense power that we have. 
But I also believe we have a tremendous amount of influence. Probably in a city government, I think we have the most influence of any department in a city. And with that comes responsibility. So if we can do it, I think that will permeate everything. So I think that's a big part of what our struggles are with in this country. You, you talk about responsibility. You're the police chief of a, a major city department. You're an African-American man. Do you feel a different kind of responsibility because of your background? Yeah, and I don't think it's just solely because of my race. I feel responsibility for that, of course. But I also feel responsible because this is my city. I was born and raised here. Uh, I've never lived anywhere else. I know tons of people here from my time here. I think a lot of times in our country, we we talk about things, uh, I don't know if superficial is the right word, but superficially, and it makes people feel better for a little bit, and then we move on, but nothing truly changed or nothing truly got better. I came back to my city from being in a suburban neighborhood to make a real difference, just like my mom did in the neighborhoods when I grew up. How, how does your race impact you, and does it help in reaching out to the community? It's a huge part of I've been a black man since the day I was born. <laughs> so I think that's a huge part of my experience, and it, it helps guide me and what my beliefs are and, and what we need to do as a police department. Now, part of your experience in growing up in Sacramento, you had encounters with law enforcement as a youth. How did that shape you? And also, have you had a talk with your children about how they should deal and approach law enforcement? The neighborhood I grew up in was not a stranger to police officers patrolling the neighborhood. I witnessed a homicide in front of my house when I was about nine years old. And when I was in junior high, I had to testify in court to that. I was arrested for resisting assault on an officer when I was 16. My younger brother in 1992 was murdered in downtown Sacramento. So I saw police officers. I saw drugs sold in front of my house growing up, prostitution activity in front of my house growing up on a regular basis. So I saw my fair share of police activity was involved in more than my share, fair share of police activity. So, yeah, um, I have not specifically had that talk. I mean, they've been around police departments since the day they were born. I dragged them to community talks and things like that. I'm sure they love that. Um, <laughs> but in generally, I tell them, uh, I've told them from the beginning, if you, for example, if you were to ask them today what a police officer does, their answer would be they help people. And so that's pretty much the talk I've given them about police officers. I mean, it sounds like your kids definitely have the right perspective on police that you would like the rest of the community to have. How do you address this us versus them mentality that that exists in Sacramento or exists certainly existed before you got there? I assume there's still, you know, aspects of that and and obviously it happens in other parts of the country as well. Oh, absolutely. That's truly the core of why I came home for this job, is to address that very issue. And I think the day we solve it is when we stop saying us versus them and we just say us, that the police department is us, the police department is part of the community. That's a big question that's going to take time to do because there's a lot of history behind that. But I think truly believe that when the neighborhoods that feel that way believe and know that the police officers that work their area care about them, then it will no longer be that way. And I mean, if you look around now, there's individual officers that neighborhoods love, right? That they believe right. that they care about them. And, and there's countless stories like that. But we have to transition from an individual officer having that 
relationship with the community to the entire department is felt. The, the community feels that way about the entire department. And I think we will get there when there's endless examples of people they feel that way about to where it becomes not just Officer Johnson or Officer Jones, but it's the police department because it happens. It, I have that feeling and I have that relationship with so many officers. It just becomes the whole department. Can you point to any specific policies that you think need to be changed that can help facilitate that? Well, I think we're already doing a lot of things that help, especially along the lines of the implicit bias type of things. But in terms of this case, we're already looking at several policies, such as the body-worn camera policy, which are fairly new in our department within the last year. And so as you get new technology, you find new you know, areas of improvement. And one that has come up in this case is the muting policy, which we're already looking at before the shooting actually happened, but had not implemented anything new. But I think we have to implement new policy around muting and when and where we can mute it, essentially not at all or in very specific cases because we can see how much mistrust the muting of the body cameras caused in our community, and we can't afford to create new instances of mistrust as we're trying to build that up. But some of the other things we do is we just started implementing after the last academy graduation that our brand new officers that graduate from the academy they go out on Fridays and do community work in the community as part of their day. And then when they graduate, like the last academy, there's an Oak Park Peace Walk every Friday. So every academy graduate went on the Peace Walk. And then a week later, we did a day of service in the neighborhood with community leaders painting people's houses that needed painting, mowing lawns, whatever needed to be done in the neighborhood. And we do that because I want officers that might not have any experience in that neighborhood. So we want our officers, before they ever put on a uniform and operate in sometimes an enforcement mode, we want them to get to know the community, want them to feel and live the community a little bit before they ever patrol as an officer and the community get to know them. The other thing we're doing is we call it a walk in our shoes program. So these officers, after about three months of training, after they get a little training under their belt out in the field, they will shadow a community leader in various neighborhoods for half a day. And then that community leader the next month or a couple weeks later will do a ride along with the officer. And then they'll get together a third time and kind of just talk about their experiences and what they learned and those sort of things, all in an attempt to get people to know the neighborhoods that they might not have experience, because we're only a product of our own experiences, to provide them new experiences in neighborhoods or in uh, areas that they don't have an experience with before they ever get into an enforcement capacity in their uniform. What were your first thoughts when you learned about the Clark shooting? Part of it is the same feeling as I always have is what's going on, what happened, are they okay, and just the sense of, you know, this is not good for our community. And then when you find out that the department's involved in it, that comes even closer to home. And then as you gain information and see, you know, in this case, the person didn't have a firearm, you're just trying to think of, okay, how do I help the family? How do we get better? How do we not leave this as just a tragedy? How do we truly get better, not just say things to make people happy or or to smooth things over for a minute, but to actually make change so we as a community don't go through this again? Can I ask you why you released the audio and video pretty quickly? Not every police chief would do that. Why did you? Yeah, I don't know anywhere that's done it that quickly. But as you probably know, our council probably a year or so ago 
voted and gave a directive that we will release videos on officer-involved shootings within 30 days. The reason I did it within three days is there's a lot of factors that helped with that. It wasn't a really complicated video to redact, and there wasn't a lot of things to redact on this video. That's not always the case. But two, there was a lot of anger and high emotions in our community, and I think our community has a right to see those videos, and the sooner we released it, the sooner people can watch it for themselves. I think the other thing that it did and I wanted it to do was there was a lot of false stories in the community, things that were being talked about in the community that actually were factually untrue, that we knew at that time were factually untrue, and the video could clear those up. So it would focus us on talking and dealing with the facts and so I think that the videos being released heighten the anger for a little bit because people can see it and it's not a positive thing to see. But I think in the long run, it is better for our community because I think in the long run, it builds trust and, and belief in the police department that there's nothing to hide. Here's the information that we can release. Watch it and come to your own conclusions. I mean, how did you handle some of the pushback internally that I assume there was because I imagine not everyone wanted you to release that. Yeah, we have a thousand employees, so I'm sure there's varying opinions. There wasn't any pushback that I heard of. And I think part of that is because we've been releasing videos now and we've gone through some other tragedies before I came back that pushed us down that road. So the fact that we've been releasing videos on both things that are within the council policy that we must release videos for, but we've also been releasing videos that are outside of the council policy that we believe are of the public interest. And so I think as you change things and make things do new processes, people over time get used to them. And so I think that's kind of where we're at now. I mean, when I first came on, we didn't have computers in the car and those were resisted when they, when we first got them. But if you, took the computer out of a car now, the officers probably wouldn't know what to do because they're just part of what we do now. And so I think releasing of the videos has become norm. And so there wasn't a lot of pushback. Now, if this was a year ago, I'm sure it would have been a much different story. Other than the specific events of, of, of the Clark case, were there any aspects or any cultural aspects within the department that contributed to an event like the shooting of Stefan Clark? Hopefully we'll determine yes or no on that as part of the investigation, but I think it has brought up some good questions that we need to explore. I mean, for example, some have brought up, well, why do we chase people into like unknown areas like the backyard and things like that? And that's traditionally what we do. We chase. But I do think it's a good point because that is pertaining to the facts of the case. And if we're at a point now where we want to talk about it, and we are, about whether we want to put some parameters around chasing people, I think those are good conversations to have because we need to do our best as not only a police department, but as a community to not put people in those situations that tragedies like that can happen. And I liken it to when I first came on our vehicle pursuits, I mean, we chased people everywhere. I mean, for everything. And we didn't stop. And that's not the way we do it now. I mean, we've changed the policy over the years to put all these parameters on how long you'll chase, when you'll chase, and a lot of things around the danger that that pursuit poses to the community. And so you hear now probably a significant portion of our pursuits 
if they go any longer than a couple seconds, are canceled by the officer actually in the pursuit. That would have never happened when I first came on the police department. So I liken it to that. If we're in a different place as a society now than we were back then and have more information and more facts and we want to change some of the fundamental things that we do as a police department, I think those are great conversations to have and great things that we should be considering if it makes us better and we're okay with the consequences of whatever we change to. You know, majority minority, it's about how people of color are changing the face of Washington, but also how Washington impacts communities of color around the country. Um, I was curious what you thought about when the White House press secretary said that this shooting was a local matter. Uh, certainly a, a terrible incident. Uh, this is something that is a uh, local matter, and that's something that we feel should be left up to the local authorities at this point in time. About do you see it as a local matter? Is it bigger than that? Is it a federal issue? I mean, how do you see it? Well, I see it both ways. I mean, obviously, it's a national issue. There's communities all across our countries that are struggling with not only this sort of incident, but the surrounding causes and things that lead to this implicit bias, disparity in neighborhoods, those sort of things. So I think that's a national issue. But for me right now, it's it's a local issue for me because this is my community and I want us to get through this and I want us to get better because of this. But I do think it is in general, it's a national issue. And if something we do, other people can learn to help them from going through the same thing or recover from the same thing, that that's great. So I think it's both. It's it's a local, definitely a local issue for me because this is my community and we need to get through this better. But it is a national issue because cities all across our country are struggling with this very thing. Are you worried about your officers who were involved in the shooting? I'm worried about all of our officers. There's been some really trying times over the last couple of weeks, and people have worked really long hours, and they're tired. I'm worried about our entire community. I'm worried about the officers because the community's tired, too. You know, I'm concerned about the protesters being safe and the protesters being able to express their opinions. But at the same time, we get a lot of complaints from the community about being delayed getting on the freeway or not being able to get into the Kings game. And so there's a lot of, you know, opposite sides constantly being upset. And, and we're trying to manage that with the first and foremost priority is our community staying safe. I mean, I I'm not sure how much you can talk about this, but are there some things that could have been done differently? Well, I think there's always things that can be done differently. But I would say at this point, before we fully review everything, I could not be more happy about the way we've gone the last couple of weeks and dealing with as a city and as a community dealing with the aftermath of this in the sense that there were some really tense moments and there was some crime and there was some violence, but it didn't get completely out of control like we've seen in other cities. And so I think that's the strength of this community. That's one of the reasons why I'm so proud to be here is that we, our community didn't get completely out of control like some of these other cities. But at the same time, we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah. There's still a lot of anger in our community. There's still a lot of concern about how the police department operates and how we operate in different neighborhoods. And so we can't just feel like, well, the tough times are past and just move on. We have to continue to address those. As you mentioned earlier, we have to have a better relationship in our community. We have to look at ways that we can hopefully prevent this sort of thing from happening again. But also there's the bigger issue of just the relationship in general with some of our neighborhoods and how do we get that better. What do you make of Sheriff Scott Jones talking about paid protesters coming in to uh, essentially stir things up? We do know because of our uh, intelligence and because of our history 
uh, with some of these folks that there are paid protesters and paid people to instigate. Well, I think that's obviously a possibility. I think other cities have mentioned that in different protests, but we have to manage our city regardless. We got to ensure that as best we can, we can keep everybody safe. I would just say, regardless of who's there, our job is the same. You know, there's a segment of our population that certainly are asking the question, why are police so violent with black men? I, again, I would say that race permeates so many things, really differences permeate so many things in our country, and we struggle with that every day as a society. And so I'm not surprised at all that that's part of the equation, because that permeates so many things in our country on a daily basis. You mentioned the advent of computers and cars and how that's made policing more modern. Do you think that's also had a downside in maybe officers spend a tad too much time in their vehicles and not enough time on the beat? Um, I think, you know, back in the day when the cities were smaller and we didn't really use cars the way we do now, I think there was a lot more interaction. I don't know if it was better relationships in all the neighborhoods, because there's never been a time in our country that all neighborhoods felt the same about their police departments. But I do think outside of the car, foot beats and things like that just kind of tend to lend themselves to better interaction as opposed to a big metal thing rolling down the street. But at the same time, our cities are bigger too. So an officer trying to get to a call if they weren't in a car would take too long to get there. And so, again, that goes back to what I said earlier. We have to find those opportunities to get the officers out of the car, whether it's bicycle patrol or foot beats in a certain area, to do those sort of things. And I think that's one aspect of how we can move forward is providing those opportunities for better interaction. Can I ask you one other question about the race issue? I mean, do you feel that officers treat black people, you know, whether they're following someone into a backyard, do they treat black individuals differently than white individuals? Do they take that into account? I can guarantee you that a significant portion of the black community believes that. So whether it's true or not, that's an issue. I mean, we all have implicit bias. If you take those implicit association tests, people will see that they have implicit bias. So to think that that doesn't happen in the police department, I think would be pretty naive. You know, you came up through the ranks. Did you make decisions differently based on, you know, someone's background, their race, their clothes, you know, et cetera? I don't think anybody could rightfully tell you they guarantee they haven't at least implicitly because it's implicit. So that's why I say the training and the acknowledgement, doing things to keep yourself in check are so important because their subconscious drives so much of what you do. Um, Betty Williams, president of the NAACP, the Sacramento bench, called the called the shooting a great test for you. Do you feel that? I mean, I, I, I think that's accurate, but I would say that I don't really look at it like that. I have I came back for a purpose and I came back to do the right thing no matter what. That is my sole focus, no matter what the situation, whether it's this or something else next week or whether it was starting this implicit bias stuff or programs or things in the community that connect our community with officers. I do every day what I think is the right thing to do, regardless of the situation. So that that's really what keeps me sane, I guess you could say. And what keeps me focused is just that unwavering thing to, you know, do what my mom taught me to do, what my mom's example was, and to just do that every day. And so I, I agree that it it is a test, but I don't really look at it like that because I'm going to do what I think is right no matter what. 
she said you, you have an opportunity to be a model. How you handle this could change how it's done around the country. I mean, that, that sounds like a heavy weight on your shoulders. <laughs> well, that would be great if that happened, but that's not my goal. My goal is to get us through this as a city and get better because of this and, and because we just need to continue to get better as a community. And if through that it becomes an example for somebody else somewhere else, great. Um, but that's, I'm, I'm not really thinking about that. Chief Han, thank you very much for your time. We'll be paying attention to what uh, you do and what the Sacramento Police Department do going forward. Thank you. It was great to have you on. Thank you. You know, I thought interesting about the chief is he didn't shy away from race in his department. No, I mean, he, he talked about, you know, bias that exists in his department, talked about bias that exists in, in police departments across the country and how that needs to be addressed. I mean, he, he talked about how the city is working on with academics and hopefully working on a program to, to try to deal with that within their department. He's trying to speak to the community, but also, you know, look out for his officers. But I felt he was honest talking about the implicit bias, as he put it, that his officers and everyone has and how that impacts the work that you do and the work that his officers do. Thanks very much to Chief Daniel Hahn for being on the show. And thanks to Jordan Marie Smith, Davin Coburn, and Ayanna Morali for producing this episode. We're glad to be back for season three and want to hear what you think. Find Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And we'll see you next week on Majority Minority. Majority Minority.